Hi there. Thanks for tuning in and listening to The Heavy Corner. I just wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who checked out the first episode with Kane from The Amenta. It was really cool to see that there were listeners from all over Australia, America, the UK, Finland, and also people from as far away as Chile and Turkey who checked it out. If this is your first time listening, I'm your host, Annalise, and today's guest is my dad, also known as Matt from Mortal Sin. So I grew up listening to all of his stories about the Australian metal scene back in the 80s, how the band started, and of course the infamous Metallica tour here in Australia in 1989. It wasn't until the band reunited in 2004 that I was finally able to see them live, and I thought it would be a really cool and interesting project to document parts of the band's history and get him to share some of those stories that I grew up with with all of you guys. This was a longer episode, so I've split it into two parts. The next episode will air later this week, and I can't wait for you guys to hear all of it. Thanks again. See you soon. So growing up in good old Western Sydney and a family of seven, were you the only musical one? I can't even remember if there's anyone else in the family that plays music aside from just appreciating it. Well, I wasn't really musical at all. <laughs> um, Chris, younger, one younger than me, Chris was... He could play anything. He could just pick up any instrument and just play. And, and I'm like, how can you play and I don't know anything? I don't know. He just seemed to know how to do things and I didn't. When did you start singing? Singing? Um, I probably didn't really start singing until maybe high school, like year 11 and 12. Um, I think... Look, I might, have, I might have sung along to songs you know, when you're listening to albums and stuff, um, but I didn't, I didn't consider myself a singer or anything. I, I, just, I just liked singing along. So when we got to year 11 and 12, you know, we, we were a little more older and going to parties and, and, you know, you'd have a few drinks and you'd just sing along to Zeppelin and, and all that sort of stuff. And then I guess everyone thought I was I was an, an all right singer, I think. And when when I was in year twelve, we were, we were kind of mucking around, just you know, let's form a band, let's form a band kind of vibe. And it wasn't going to be really a band; it was just going to be a joke band. And we were going to call ourselves the Celastic Gaskets, which at the time there was a a TV commercial on with um, a racing car driver. Um, I think it was Alan Alan Moss or something like that. And he had an ad on TV which was about celastic gaskets, and we just thought it was funny, you know. <laughs> and and then when we were choosing who was going to be in the band, everyone just sort of pointed to me and said, "Well, you're going to be the singer." And I'm like, "What? <laughs> I'm not a singer. I, I can't sing." And then, oh, yeah, you can, yeah, no, well, you know, we're only mucking around. So, okay, all right, if we're only just mucking around, well, I guess I'm the singer. <laughs> and over over the period of the year, it, it sort of went from being a joke band to why don't we just play a gig, you know, why don't we play a party? And, well, Steve Edmonds was chosen as, as the drummer, he was he was in a year lower than us, but we were friends with him at school and he actually lived at um, my house, at my mum's house for, with us when he ran away from home. 
at one stage. But before before that, we we did a party at his his mum's place, uh, which I think was like Quakers Hill or something like that. And so Celestic Gaskets was born. We we, we just you know we we had probably I don't know ten or twelve songs. We were just doing. Led Zeppelin covers, um, maybe some Deep Purple at the time, which was 1979. We, we're talking about so, you know, like the real, the real heavy metal was was at the time it was consisted of Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, Nazareth, Budgie, all that sort of stuff, and and they and they're the kind of bands that I listened to uh, from you know having. What did I have? Three big brothers uh, who you know, had their own record collections and things like that. So I, I basically, you know, when, whenever they were playing a record, I was listening, you know, and, and there was a, a pretty good collection there. And uh, one brother just above me, Dan, Danny, he was probably the biggest influence on on my musical taste because he, he, was, he was sort of playing... You know, early Queen. Uh, he he showed us all the budgie stuff. He showed us Nazareth, um, Mike Oldfield. Not it's not metal, but you know, he, he had such a, a diverse kind of range of musical stuff. So um, you know, I I kind of when when it came time to me buying my own records, when you know, once I had a job sort of late 79, 80, I started to buy similar stuff. I was, I was buying uh, Ted Nugent, Sammy Hagar, you know, all, all kind of classic rock stuff uh, along with, you know, I guess I, I didn't really have to buy Sabbath or anything like that because we already had those records in the house. So for me it was about, you know, what it, you, you're looking at covers. We, we used to go, there was a store in Blacktown called Ward's and uh, it was a second-hand store. And uh, it it was basically right opposite the station. So, you know, if you if you caught the train or the bus, you basically got off, and there and there it was. Ward's Ward's record store was right there. So, any time I used to go into Blacktown, that was my first stop. It was you know you walked in, you looked for records. I used to collect a lot of Hendrix at the time as well, and uh, this was a store that had. Um, just so many records, so many records of bootlegs and rare stuff, picture discs, you know, stuff that, uh, in, you know, when you're a young, impressionable kid, you know, when you run into your, your adulthood, the, the first thing you want to do is just get all the cool stuff. Mm. You know, so, um, I, I think uh, pretty much every every paycheck for me was going and buying albums, you know, five, six, seven, eight albums. You, when you were at Wards, an album was like six bucks, five bucks if you're lucky, you know, secondhand. So I, by the time I left school in 1980, I, I probably had, had amassed three or 400 records. You know? <laughs> was that the inspiration to open the shop? Oh, well, that, that was a long time later. That was like 10 years later, you know. Uh, but yeah, yeah the, the shop was basically started on me selling pretty much all, all those records in the end. But, um, you know, it, it, it was it, it was an interesting time because the late 70s and the very early 80s, you know, it was way before Metallica. The, the new wave of British heavy metal and then the new album, you know, when you read about that sort of stuff, that's really what was just coming in, you know. 
Iron, Iron Maiden was probably the biggest, you know, and, and we sort of had, had started hearing about them probably 79, 80 in Australia, maybe 81, 82. Judas Priest was 80, 81, 82, 83. Def Leppard, 81, 82, 83. So it was just sort of starting. The whole scene was turning from, you know, just this new wave of British heavy metal into like a worldwide scene. And, and um, you know, it, it was kind of, that was the early influences. So when, when um, I first, you know, like after the, like the Celastic Gaskets, we, we probably were doing that kind of thing. Celastic Gaskets became Galleon, which became Crash Landing, which became Checks in the Mail, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. We we were still kind of listening to and, and playing the classic stuff, even Cream and stuff like that, you know, uh, anything, anything sort of from 75 to probably 80, 81. And then when Maiden came out, I think it, um, I think it sort of inspired a lot of people a little more musically because they were a lot more musically. Uh, you know, they, their songs were... Mm. Uh, there was a lot of storytelling and, and the playing was different and it was I think a lot of people could have went kind of went from the classic metal to wow this is really musical and I think it, it got a lot of you know the guitarists and that sort of uh, playing trying to play the riffs and stuff and and I think that sort of moved everyone out of the old school kind of category and into, I guess, if you wanted to call it the new school category. Um, and, and then, you know, the following years, 83, 84, which was when Metallica, Slayer, Exodus, those, you know, the, the first wave of thrash metal started to come through. So, you know, we, we had just started to get musical with the Iron Maiden and the Def Leppards and the Molly Crews and all that sort of stuff. And then all, all of a sudden this this thrash music came out and it was like, what? Wow, what the hell is this stuff? This is this is pretty cool, you know. I mean, look, while, while I was at school, mm. we we also listened to a lot of punk, you know. Uh, 70, 79 and 80 uh, was, you, you know, you had Cheap Trick, you had... Um, XTC, you had The Clash, you had Sex Pistols. So in, in the middle of what metal was happening, the, the punk scene was kind of upping it up a touch. You know, they, they were, I don't know, they moved on from the metal and were kind of playing this. It, it wasn't so aggressive, but it, it was different enough so that when the thrash bands had come in, they picked up on all the punk stuff and all the new wave of British heavy metal stuff combined the two, which kind of gave the thrash. You know, it was a little more, a little more aggressive. The, the, the early, very early thrash stuff was sort of like punch in the face, fast, aggressive, which was kind of built on, you know, the the Ramones and the Pistols and and that sort of stuff. You know, so it, it, it's it's hard to explain to a, a younger person who sees all this sort of stuff in hindsight, but we lived through all of it. So we lived through, you know, even for me was the, the Beatles, you know, late 60s, then the Sabbaths and the Zeppelins and, and that stuff, and then the punk and then the thrash metal. So, you know, it was like a, a progression 
getting harder and harder and heavier and heavier, then faster and faster, and then bang, slap in the face stuff. You know, it's like, wow. You know, that's that's what got me. I mean, to be honest, when I, I mean, I used to listen to a lot of compilation albums. You know, because to me, compilation albums is you didn't have to commit to buying a full album. You could just, you know, you you turn. The compilation over and you go, oh, yeah, this band looks cool. Wow, look, there's like eight cool bands on there. Let's have a listen, you know. And and one band I'd heard was Accept. And um, I think one of the songs on uh, one of the compilations was Fast as a Shark, which is the first time I'd heard Double Kick. You know, it was, it was like, what what is this stuff? You know, like this is this is so powerful. And, and I, had, um, I had a stereo at home. I was still living at home at the time and, I would just crank it to 10, you know, and just listen to this double kick stuff. And wow, I love this kind of vibe. This is this is what <laughs> I want to play. This is around 1980. So, you know, we we were kind of had just been moving on from that Celastic Gaskets muck around stuff and playing, you know, the old school kind of vibe where it it came into my head where this is what I this is what I want to do. You know, this this is kind of. How do, I, how do I find other people that want to do this stuff, you know? And then it wasn't really until 83, 84, because, like, in the middle of around 82, 83, 84, I was playing in a uh, Judas Priest cover band. I don't know why. I guess because I could sing the songs, you know. It, it was basically, that was the music, you know. If it wasn't made and it was, it was Judas Priest uh, that everyone was sort of into, that was just before my, uh, Metallica hit. So I, I was playing that kind of stuff, and um, and it was yes, out. He's out. Look, can you see who's up there? Can you see who's on the screen? I, I was doing that sort of stuff, and then and then I was in a band called Fury, um, which was uh, like uh, Greg Smith, who became the singer in Addictive, and Joe Buttergeek, who was the guitarist in in Addictive and then a few other guys, Manuel Texan, who uh, was, I think, was in Slaughter Lord for a while, you know. So th- these were the early stages of... Um, get outside, please. These were the early stages of the thrash kind of slowly building in, even though the band Fury was, you know, only a slight progression on from doing the Judas Priest stuff. You know, we, we played a couple of... Uh, Molly Crew things. We played some Ozzy Osbourne, you know, and, and then that was around I think '83, and then '84 when Kill 'Em All came out. I think well, we came out in '83, but we didn't really get it in Australia till like '84, and then everyone started talking about it. So it was like, man, no, it's this is what we got to play, you know. This is this is the kind. So going from you know the old school rock to the you know, the Ozzy Osbournes and the Motley Crews. And then it's like, got to play this kind of fast, aggressive music. This, this was what was, you know, in my in my head of what would be cool. So 80, 84, I was still doing the Judas Priest thing. And then 85 came around. I was, I think at the time I was coming back from a Judas Priest cover band rehearsal. And I, I ran into Wayne Campbell on a train. I didn't know him. He was, I, I was just uh, playing a ghetto blaster and playing some metal. You know, there was a, it was a quiet train. It was a thunderstorm going on. A lightning strike hit the train. Uh, the, the train stopped. So we, we were sitting in the middle of 
platform, you know, two platforms, couldn't go anywhere. So, uh, and I think he'd come through through the carriage and, and heard me playing and just struck up a conversation. He, and he, he was like, oh, are you in a band? I said, oh, you did just a cover band. Are you in a band? Oh, yeah, we just, you know, we talk, started talking about all that stuff. stuff and, um, and then Metallica, Slayer and all that sort of exodus sort of came into the conversation. So... And I was like, oh, you like all that stuff too? And he said, yeah, man, yeah, we love all that stuff. And, you know, since he was a drummer and I was a singer, he was like, well, man, we should try and get a band together, you know. And he said, well, I'm in a band called Wizard, so why don't you come down to one of our rehearsals? And so I think like a week later I'd gone to a rehearsal. And Wizard, Wizard was this kind of band who was still sort of stuck into that, you know, new wave of British heavy metal. They were playing... So they were playing their own some of their own songs, but it was very inspired by uh, Iron Maiden. You know, it was it was kind of I guess you would call in those days like seventy nine, eighty through to about eighty four, eighty five. You, you Iron Maiden was kind of progressive. You know, the, their runs, the, the way they played their guitar, it was it was different to all of the other stuff. So they were kind of, kind of playing that that style of music and mm. and I I sang a couple of songs but I I was kind of singing a little rough and a little grotty and you know a little gruffy kind of James Hetfield kind of vibe and um, they didn't like it you know they, they wanted they wanted a, a Bruce Dickinson kind of singer yeah, which I could do you know I could I, I could sing any maiden song and and I did sing, you know, when we were with them, we we did a few covers, you know, like Hello Be The Name or, you know, some of the earlier stuff. And I, I could do I could do them pretty well, but I didn't want to sing like that. I, I wanted to sing, you know, the, the, the thrashy metal kind of vibe. So I think I'd probably done two, maybe three rehearsals with them or jams, I guess. And, um, yeah, they were... They were sort of talking amongst themselves and uh, I, I got the vibe that they didn't like it but Wayne did and Keith did and Keith was the guitarist and uh, and then so the, the, between the three of us well, we just decided well why don't we just walk away from those guys and form our own band yeah so I was like yeah yeah well that, that'd be really good and Keith Keith was this guitar player who he was solid and, and he you know, he, he could write. So we, we had a pretty good start there. You know, he, he knew how to write a song and he, he was a little more interested in the heavier side of stuff as well. So um, I think, you know, I, I don't know if it was straight after that, but it was within a few weeks or a few months of that uh, where we decided to have our own jam and uh, sort of look for other musicians. And uh, I think at the time... We auditioned several guitarists and several bass players, and one of the bass players that came along and jammed was Steve King. Well, Steve King, I don't know whether you know or not, is he, he played with uh, Rose Tattoo for quite a while, like after that, not not before that, but um, he was a good solid player. But we didn't didn't sort of get much of a. He, he sort of played more hard rocky kind of vibe where we wanted someone who was more into the I don't know cross from Steve Harris and maybe Cliff Burton you know someone who could really play heavy 
So I think we we probably tried out, oh, I don't know, maybe six, seven bass players. And we also tried out, I don't know, maybe 10 guitarists. We did actually have uh, some guitarists for a while. We had a guy named Nobby who was in a, he was in a local band called China White. Uh, he was, he, he was actually really good, but again, he was kind of more into the Maiden vibe, not into the thrash vibe. And then um, we had another guy called Neville Reynolds. Now, Neville Reynolds, uh, he was more into the thrashier side, and uh, so he, he, he kind of was the one that got the job. So this was before Paul Kawana. Now, now, the reason we changed from Neville to Paul Kawana because uh, fr- from 1985, we, we sort of started jamming earlier in the year in 85, and then we were sort of getting to the point where we want to play, you know, we, we sort of get some gigs together. Uh, it happened pretty quick. We we would actually had written, uh, I don't know, we in in that period, like the six months of 1985, we'd probably written six songs. You know, like they, they came pretty fast. They're pretty basic songs. You know, uh, some of the earlier songs were Metal City, which was just went like Metal City, drive you mad, Metal City, ain't that bad? It was kind of really, really simple. Molly Grewish. And then there was another song which was called Evil, you know, evil, evil, evil in my veins. You know, it was real simple stuff, but it was catchy. It was kind of along the lines of Metallica's uh, Seek and Destroy, you know, really kind of just heavy riffs, not not quite fast at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, we, we decided, oh, we've got to start playing gigs, you know, like we want to get in. Because no one was really playing gigs at the time. You're talking 80, 85, late 85 to 1986. So by the beginning of the year, we'd booked our first gig in 86. I think it was uh, February or January. Yeah, I think it was January. And um, Neville, Neville, the guitarist, was uh, he said, oh, I'm going overseas. I'm going overseas for Christmas, seeing the family, going to be there for, I don't know, a month or two months or whatever. I was like, well, we got a gig, dude. It's our first gig. You, you got to be there. So like, oh, I can't. I can't change a trip. Blah blah blah. So, well, we sacked him. It was like, we'll see ya. <laughs> you know, it, it was. It was basically that was the attitude in the band. We we were ready and we wanted to play, and nothing was going to stop us. At the time, we we got. I don't know. I can't remember when this all sort of happened. Whether Andy came before. Paul or Paul came before Andy, I think. I think Andy, yeah, I think Andy was in the band and he said, I I know this guy, he was in the band Judge with us. Uh, he's, he's, he's into Sabbath, you know, but he, he loves thrash stuff as well. So we thought, oh, yeah, if you like Sabbath, it's kind of evil, you know, heavy, doomy kind of riffs and you like thrash as well. It's like, yeah, all right, come along. So um, he came along for a jam. It's like, yep, you're it. Because we had a gig in two months, you know, so we had to get someone who was like, "Yep, you're in." Not a lot of choice. Yeah, so <laughs> that was that was pretty much the lead up to our first shows, which were January '86, uh, and then so we did that show. It was at the um, the Royal Hotel in Sutherland, and uh, we 
I think we were only like a support band, but you know, for us it didn't matter. It was just, it was just a gig. We were playing with, uh, I think it was Lotus and Lightning Rock or something like that, which at the time uh, Lightning Rock was just a hard rock band who were doing, you know, what we were doing years ago, so, you know, Deep Purple, uh, that sort of stuff, a uh, little bit of Iron Maiden. And Lotus were Lotus were kind of a little more, little more metal than hard rock. So, you know, it was a bit of a mismatch, you know. It was, it was, at the time, it didn't matter. We, we were going there. We, we kind of had our own little following, you know. There was people who would come to rehearsals and there was, we knew a lot of people who were into thrash, but there was no thrash band. There was no, in Sydney anyway, there was no thrash bands that were playing. So once word got out that we were going to play, there was a lot of people interested. So we, we rocked up to this Royal Hotel in Sutherland and um, there was a decent sort of crowd. I think there was probably three or 400 people. And, um, you know, we, we had a set which had, I think it was like that, those five or six of our own songs. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was basically, we, I think we went on first and the, the crowd just went nuts, you know. And it was like, wow. Yeah. You know, they sort of had the feeling that I had the feeling, you know, back in earlier times when I first heard the music it was like ah you know this is crazy stuff well then when you were playing to a crowd they were had all the same feeling so they was ah this is all crazy yeah this is what we want to hear this is what we want to see so so basically we, we played our set and then everyone went home <laughs> you know because they, they didn't want to see Lotus they didn't want to see Life and Rock they just wanted to see us so basically I think there was like maybe 50 people left in the room that stayed to you know work, watch the other band so so that was pretty much the start of the Sydney scene. I, you know, I don't know what the other scenes were like in Melbourne and all that sort of stuff, but in Sydney, you know, we were probably, you know, one of the first fresh bands to play. You know, there, there might have been other bands around who were playing the stuff, but uh, I think that was... You, you know, you could probably arguably say that was the first thrash gig in Sydney. While we were at the gig... Um, you know, there was a couple of agents there, you know, that we we were trying to get more gigs with, you know. So when when you're a thrash band and when you, you know, you're playing a kind of music that no one's ever heard before, very hard to get gigs. You know, it's it's like, well, we don't know what kind of music you play, blah, 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 blah. We showed videos and stuff. It's like, oh, I don't know if we want that in our hotel. You know, it looks a bit scary to us. And, <laughs> but once we played a gig, uh, one of the promoters who – was in charge of the Royal Hotel and was also in charge of the Seven Hills Inn. We said to her, can we get another gig, you know? Look, look, did you see? Did you see this, you know? And she was like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. It was it was kind of, it was scary, but, yeah, you, you got some people along, so, yeah, all right, we, we can give you some gigs. So once once we kind of got the okay, it was, it was you know, one, we got our foot into the door. It was like, right. We're not going to let this door close. I mean, this we have to just keep keep booking, keep booking, and 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 as I said, you know, being being this heavier, you know, I mean, we used to promote our gigs as the heaviest band in Australia, you know, um, that kind of vibe, because at the time, well, no one was no one was playing that sort of stuff, you know. Uh, so we. Yeah, we eventually got more gigs, which led to more gigs, which led to more gigs, which led to more gigs, you know. So 
we were on a bit of a roll, you know, and we started adding songs. And and at the time, too, we were also writing new songs. So uh, once we started writing newer songs, we were sort of letting those simple ones that, you know, yeah, they're, they're no good anymore. These ones are better. Yeah. And um, it was kind of leading into the middle of 86. We, we probably had, you know, 10 or 12 or, or more gigs under our belt and, we we probably had ten songs as well, you know. We 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 were kind of doing both things at the same time. So rehearsing for gigs, but also you know writing new songs. And uh, we were kind of let's go and do a demo, you know. So uh, at the time, uh, CDs weren't even around. Is this you know you're talking eighty six CDs were not the norm. There was just LPs. So we, we thought, let's let's just go do a demo. We'll be able to send this demo overseas. You know, there was a lot of magazines around at the time. Metal Forces, Kerrang, Mega Metal Kerrang, um, you know, and, and a lot of uh, fanzines. It was, you know, if you opened up a Metal Forces magazine, you would see fanzines from all around the world. So you... you you sort of, you pick them as you, right, this is who I'm going to send a demo to. Bang, 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 bang. In those days, tape trading was was a really big thing, you know. If you've ever read the story, the Metallica story, Lars Ulrich, the whole, how they did their thing was this whole tape trading thing. So, all right, we, we thought, let's, was it, let's just pick eight songs. We, we discarded, you know, the, the Metal City and lot of the evils and that sort of stuff. And by that time, we'd had... Lebanon, we'd had Liar, we'd had Blood, Death, Hatred. You know, we we'd written all these these really cool songs. So it was like, yeah, we got to we got to get these on a on a demo. So we rang up around a couple of studios and uh, we we got into Studio Three Hundred One, which at the time was on Castlereagh Street in the city, and it was a big studio. You know, it was uh, probably you know, you know the Easy Beats and all those kind of bands, ACDC. All, all those 60s and 70s bands had recorded there. So it was, to us, it's like, oh, man, this is, you know, ACDC is recording here, you know, that sort of thing. So we, we've got to record there. <laughs> so we booked ourselves for, I think it was three days. It was all we could afford, you know, uh, in those days, studios. You know, you can own your own studio for about $2,000, but in those days it was $2,000 a day to hire a studio. So... You know, I think we, we hired the studio for three days and uh, we got this guy called John Darwish. He was one of the uh, sort of in-house guys at 301 or something or someone knew him, you know. He didn't really know heavy metal or anything like that. Uh, so we, we went in and we started recording some songs and uh, after the first day, we were, you know, you'd you go in the room and you'd listen to some playbacks. And uh, we were listening to the playbacks and we were like, wow, this, this is awesome. You know, like hearing your songs recorded, you know, when you've never heard a song recorded before, it just like blew our minds and was like, wow, this is going to be huge, you know. And and John, the the, uh, the engineer and the, and the producer guy, he was like, man, you should just put these, this on a record. I was like, no, 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 this is just a demo. He says, no, guys, just, just make it as a record. And we're like, what? How do you do that? You know, we had no idea. <laughs> he's, he's like, just 
put it on a record, go to some place and get them recorded and make some records. So we're like, okay, all right, how do you do that? All right, we'll figure it out. So here's this young bunch of guys from Australia, no idea what we're doing, no clue as to how to make a record. So, you know, you don't, it's 1986, so you don't Google something. There's no freaking message <laughs> Google or internet. So, you know, you, you get out the yellow pages and you look up LP manufacturers, vinyl manufacturers. So you scroll through the pages and you, you go, oh, yeah, all right, well, let's pick this one. Or you ring up three or four of them, you know, how much does it cost to do this, blah, 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 blah. So we, we picked a place. Um, oh, oh, hang on, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go back to, to the album because we obviously hadn't finished the album yet. So we, the second day, you know, we, we <laughs> recorded the rest of the songs. We, so that we recorded eight songs uh, and um, basically we mixed everything in in like a, a full, it was like 40 hours straight, you know, or some, something ridiculous like that. We were, we were pretty much there for three days. No one slept. No one, you know, it was just we got this out of the way. So we're just pushing things through. So... Once, once we got all that done, yeah, that's when we got the, the phone book out and we're searching through how do we make a record. When do we make a record? Ring up, get on the phone, right, how do we do this? What do you do? And it's, oh, you're going to have these parts and these parts and you got to get the tapes and all this. In those days, you had, like, tape, you know, it was all your, your, everything was recorded on tape. These days, it's just recorded straight to hard drive. You know, and uh, so we, we got our tapes and we went down there and we had them all made up. It was a very big learning process. We, we basically had no clue what we were doing. We were relying on the people in, in you know, in the industry to sort of get us through. So uh, this was sort of, yeah, mid-86 mid and uh, we were going to make a record. <laughs> it's like, okay, we're putting out a record. It's, it's like it wasn't something that was in our plans until, you know, a lot later. So we, we go and get some records made up and um, we didn't even know how to make, so we, I think we just made, I think it was like 4,000 or something, 4,000 records. Um, we got one of the, a friend to make up an image for us, you know, was, we were going to call it Miami Destruction. So, we're, you know, what do you, we didn't know what we were going to put on the album, so we could have put our heads together and it's like, oh, what about this beast, you know, sort of just destroying Sydney and the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge and stuff. Everyone's like, oh, fuck yeah, that'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. So, okay, who's going to draw Who's going to do that? <laughs> I think it was one of Paul's friends, uh, Paul's cousin, actually, I think it was, who uh, did the drawing. And um, when they brought it back to us, it's like, fuck. Yes, yes, yes. This is awesome. This is awesome. Yeah, so we, we had to come up with some money. So, you know, uh, basically we scrounged up, and I think Keith put in a lot of the money um, at the time. So once once we got all that started, uh, I think it was – it took quite a while. You know, it wasn't an easy or a quick process. It was something that took quite a few months. I was going through all my diaries to try and figure out when did when did we make this thing, you know? And and I can see in diary uh, dates, you know, took took the parts to this, got the album cover art done, got this done, which was leading up towards the end of 1986. And uh, I think we were just waiting for it to come, you know, we we're waiting for it to get pressed and everything. 
and then there's a there's another diary entry which is in the first week of January saying the album's arrived we've got the album you know so basically we we'd had a hit list of where we were going to send everything so uh, you know it, it, all it was all it was was a, a case of getting that hit list uh, packing them all up sending them across you know obviously we sent one to metal forces uh, and every record shop that was in metal forces uh, one of the record shops that we sent it to was a record shop in London called Shades. Well, Shades was to London what Utopia is to Sydney. You know, basically, uh, it, it was like where everyone went. It was if you're a Londoner and you wanted to hear heavy metal, you would go to Shades. You know, Shades had like the biggest ad in in the metal forces, so that was one of the first places we were going to send it to. So. Anyway, we uh, sent a copy over to Shades. We sent one to Metal Forces. We uh, did right. You know, it, it was it was a, pretty much a masterstroke. You know, knowing who we were going to send it to was the that was the the catapult that took us from we got a record out to who is this band from Australia that sound like Metallica, <laughs> you know? So when, when it made its way into uh, Metal Forces, we got a review, you know, they, they did a review, which, hey, we got 99 out of 100, <laughs> which at the time was better than, like, Anthrax Among the Living and better than Megadeths, you, you, you know what I mean? Like, it was 99. It was, long, it was near perfect, basically. Yeah. And then... A little bit later on, um, when they were playing it in Shades, uh, Shades sort of when they got it, they put it on. It was like, oh, what's this band from Australia? Because you put a you put a you know like a bio in with a record with a record. So oh, we're, they're from Australia. It's like, wow, let's check out this band from Australia. And they put it on, and, and basically we're cranking it up loud, and lo and behold, you, you know, it's one of those pure strokes of luck. That the A and R guy from Phonogram Records was was in was in the store, and he's gone up to him and said, "Is this Metallica's new album?" And then, no, 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 this is like some band from Australia called Mortal Sin. <laughs> he's like, oh, "Mortal Sin from Australia? Never heard of them." If you're keen to hear future episodes, please hit that like, follow, or subscribe button on whatever platform you're hearing this episode on. You can get in touch and find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at The Heavy Corner. Or you can check out the website at www.theheavycorner.com. The episode is recorded, edited and transcribed by me. A special thanks to Dan Gibbons for writing the music. And of course, thank you to our guests.